We are launching a brand new series today, a series through the book of Daniel entitled Dare to be Different, and I entitled today's message Distinctively Different, Distinctively Different. The very idea is that Christians ought to be different in all the right ways, but not in all the wrong ways. If you know what I'm talking about, we'll dig into that. So I'm going to give you a couple stats as we begin. Uh, are any of you familiar with the Barna Group? The Barna Group is kind of like the Christian version of the Gallup poll, right? They do research on the church and how people view different things throughout the nation. So in 1990, uh, excuse me, whoa, 2016, wow, I'm jumping way back there. In 2016, not 1916, right? In 2016, Barna did some stats on perceptions of Christianity in America. And here's what they found out. Uh, 90% of all people who checked the box that said, I do not affiliate with religion or I'm not a Christian, 90% of all uh, of those said, they agreed with this statement, being religiously extreme is a threat to society. Being religiously extreme is a threat to society. Now, I imagine what you're thinking right now is you're going, well, okay, I, I see how they can get there. And you probably have a couple of thoughts in your mind, right? Religiously extreme. You're, you're probably not thinking of you, right? <laughs> of course not, yeah? This is the sad part. 45% of that same group agreed with this statement. Christianity is extremist. Christianity is the extremist group. And then here's the other sad thing. Another 41% on top of it agreed that Christianity is somewhat extremist. So once again, if we're talking about people that would not identify as Christians and their viewpoints towards Christians, there is a fear of extremism and Christianity falls into the category of extremism. Now you would say, okay, well that was, that was 2016, maybe things have gotten better, right? So 2019, Barna did a different study and what they did is they, they put out to people a whole list of terms and they said, which of these terms would you associate with Christianity? And they could pick any of them. And so this was their results. 39% of non-believers said they would use the word religiously conservative. Religiously conservative when talking about Christians. And you go, oh, okay, all right. 37% said politically conservative. When they think of Christian, they think of politically conservative. The next highest stat was 33%, and that was the word narrow-minded. 30% checked homophobic, 22% checked puritanical, 21% checked misogynistic, 18% checked racist. Not one positive term was marked over 9%. Finally, at 9%, the words caring and friendly were used. Now. Once again, it's, you know, this is where we kind of fall into a default mode, right? Where we're like, you know, whoa, we're misunderstood. Okay, but do you really think that those that do not know Christianity are going to do the research to clarify how you view things? So is the responsibility on them or is it on us to work with our PR problem, right? And if it's not a PR problem, but it's an actual 
problem, whose job is it to right the ship and make sure that the testimony of Jesus Christ is actually known for things like loving, caring, concerned, compassionate, right? And the other way that we default is we're like, there's always going to be persecution. Okay, hold on. Let me clarify. That is true. But let me also remind you that Jesus was never persecuted by a non-believer. Jesus Christ was persecuted by a competing religious group. So if we're going to talk about religious groups having problems with each other, that's one thing. But once again, Jesus didn't have any problems from non-believers. Now, did that rapidly start? Yes. As a matter of fact, we really ticked off the Roman Empire when we stopped being a part of their emperor worship. We wouldn't play along with kind of their secular religion of the time where we're going to call the emperor deity. We were like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And when we pulled out of that, we ticked them off and then they're mad. And it was like everything we did at that point ended up being irritating, if that makes any sense. So I'm not telling you that persecution's not going to happen or that it shouldn't happen. Because anytime you stand for something that conflicts with the core values of another group, there's going to be tension. What I'm saying is I would hope that along with some of that necessary tension, we can have much more conversations about, wow, I don't agree with those Christians, but they sure are good people. Right? I mean, isn't that what we want? Yeah. I mean, we don't, we don't want it all to be, well, yeah, they hate me. Because it says that we will be known by our love. So if love is not marking high on our sheet, I think it should be high on our sheet along with, wow, they're really not into materialism or you know, humanistic views or whatever. Hey, they're really not in partnership with evolution. But at least they can say, I think they're off their rocker, but boy, are they loving. You know what I mean? So I think that we have a lot to do to communicate better with those that do not yet know our faith, right? And I think we need to live out in action even more so than talk. I think that is a bit of the concern. Now, here's what the Bible says we should be known for. And I couldn't like crystallize the whole Bible for you, but I grabbed Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That was one of his first kind of recorded long sermons talking about how we ought to be different. And here's the things that he said we should be known for. That we are to be meek, longing for what is right, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, controllers and directors of our anger properly. Not lustful, not divorcing, not retaliating when we're personally slighted, loving our enemies, generous to the needy, prayerful, focused on heavenly matters, unworried, non-judgmental, treating others like we want to be treated, living out our faith in action. That is how we ought to be distinctive. Here's the fill in the blank on that app, or maybe you just want to take some notes. Write this down. Christians should be different in the right ways. Christians should be different in the right ways. Now, this entire series, Dare to be Different, is the idea of being distinctive. But our whole focus is in what ways? 
There's ways to be different that don't matter. There's ways to be different that are bad. And there's ways to be different that are right. We want to zero in on those, right? I mean, that's kind of the whole point. So we're doing a study about an amazing man of God that lived 2,600 years ago named Daniel. Daniel was known as distinctive to his culture. So we're going to analyze his life and figure out what can we learn about how he operated, take that into modern day, and figure out whether or not we can have that same type of character, if we can have that same type of lifestyle. Now, one of the things he was known for was that he was a man intimately connected with God. How? Prayer. He was a man of prayer. So that's why for all these 10 weeks as we're going through the series, we as a church are going to be focused on praying together in the same way in alignment. We're going to be doing prayer prompts every three days of the week, right? We're going to be doing prayer prompts. So there's going to be three during the week. I'm going to give you one today. You're going to kind of write that down. We're all going to pray about that. And then as you sign up for that texting, you'll get three different prompts throughout the week so we can all pray as one body, amen? So that is really gonna start saying if we want to be distinctively different in all the right ways, we have to be absolutely connected to our Heavenly Father, that His life, that His reality would flow through us out into the world. So that is obviously our focus. Daring to be different means living distinctively for Jesus Christ. Daring to be different means living distinctively for Jesus Christ. Jesus used two common illustrations or metaphors when talking about Christians interacting with the world. Salt and light. Light is attractional, right? It's the idea, he talks about a city on a hill or a, a light up on a lampstand and it draws people to it so they would get clarity. Right? I mean, isn't that the point? Man, I'm so sick of being in the dark. I wish I had a flashlight. Man, I'm so tired of stumbling around in my world. I wish I knew what was really going on. I got to go find a light. That's what we are supposed to be. That the Lord would provide us the ability to guide and direct towards the Lord. Because he can show them the way. Salt is engaging right? If light is attractional, salt goes where it needs to be. Does that make sense? So it's not, I'm going to hang out here on a hill and you come find me. That's, I'm going to go get into where you're at and make a difference. Where do you use salt? You use it in two different locations. One, if there is a beginning of decay, you need a preservative and so if we have society beginning to come apart a little bit at its fabric, what do we need but more Holy Spirit? We need more Christians in the mix so that God would begin to flow once again. The other way you use salt is flavoring. Wherever there is a dull, dry, no richness of life, you should really want a bunch of Christians in there to liven the place up. In other words, they come in with the power of the Holy Spirit. They're connected into the heavenly realm. They are supernatural beings. And suddenly there's an infusion of what matters into the environment. That is what we want. Amen? Amen. Yeah, that's it. All right. So here's the questions that I'm kind of leading with. How can we live in such a way 
that the rest of the world not only takes notice, but wants what we have, right? Here's another one. How can we conduct our lives that reflects the power of a transformed reality? How can we live in a way that not only makes God smile, but is impossible to ignore in all the right ways? That's what this series is about, so let's do this. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. Uh, it would be page 797 if you're grabbing an ESV, maybe even the one under the seat in front of you there, right? Online, be sure to go ahead and grab a Bible and just kind of open up. Page 797 will get you pretty close, right? So we're studying the book of Daniel. Who is Daniel? Interestingly enough, he is a government official. That's actually his job. We forget that a lot. We think of him in all the different ways. And he's most famous for what story? Daniel and the lion's den. Like we all know about the lion thing. We'll talk about that. But there's so much more, right? He was a government official that spiritually operated as a prophet. It's kind of what we would call him. But listen, listen to these stats. This is amazing. He lived through five different Jewish kings, six Babylonian kings, and three Persian kings, and watched the changeover of two different empires. His name Daniel means God is my judge, and his ministry spanned 70 years. That is one of the longest ministry tenures in the entire Bible recorded. This guy saw it all. He was in the palace when there was an intrigue of this person killing this person, and this one assassinated this one. He went through all of it. He was right there in the middle. Why do you think God put him right in the middle? Because that's where the Christian should be. Is it any mistake that Israel was placed in the Middle East, which became the center of the entire world? Of course not. You're always in the center. You go, man, why is my life so hard? Why do I always feel like I'm in the middle of tension? Because that's where you need the Christians. Man, I don't even have time to tell you about the uniqueness of where we live and why there's so much tension going on around us, just even politically. The idea that you have Placer County touching Sacramento County, and then you have all these nuances, and you have the Bay Area engaging with one of the most conservative places, and the clash is everywhere. What do you need in the middle of difficulty? A bunch more Christians, because you need a lot more of the Holy Spirit. Yeah? All right. So, here we go. Daniel, and this is a little, for you Bible nerds, I got something for you. I didn't know this, so this will be a little Bible trivia for you. Did you know the book of Daniel is written in two languages? I didn't know that. As a matter of fact, out of the 12 chapters, six of the chapters are written in Hebrew. Six of the chapters are written in Aramaic. I didn't know that. I thought that was interesting. It seems like whenever he gets back to his personal memoir stuff, he would shift into Aramaic. And then whenever he was talking about stories outside of him, he would talk about about them in Hebrew. Kind of just an oddity about how it was designed. Why did he write this book? To glorify God and to remind his people that God is still in control. I don't know how many of you need to hear that reminder periodically that God is still in control, right? I mean, think about what is the time in history he was living? Israel got wiped out the north got wiped out in 722 BC. The south got wiped out in 586 BC. The Jews were no longer in the promised land. Their whole identity was torn apart. 
and they were removed out of their land and they were all wondering if God was still on the throne. So he writes a book and he says, not only is he on the throne right now, but he has given me visions of the future. There's a lot of prophecy in Daniel. He starts talking about things that are hundreds of years in the future, thousands of years in the future, and guess what? God's still on the throne. This is where his people were saying, but you don't understand what's happening politically. And he said, but God's still on the throne. They said, you don't understand what's happening in the world. You're you're not keeping your eyes open. He said, oh, I am. My spiritual eyes, and they tell me that God is still on the throne. But you don't understand that all of society is going down, but God is still on the throne. And so every time you do not allow your circumstances to dictate your theology, I get it. Things aren't going right all the time. You may even be in a period in history of the darkest, just like Daniel was, but God is still on the throne, and he knows what he's doing. Amen? Amen. So let's dive into it. Let's go to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord, that word is Adonai, or king, meaning God, gave or delivered over Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with some of the vessels of the temple, the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar brought those to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Let's talk about history for a moment. I told you briefly that the north, remember north and south? When Israel was a nation, they kind of fell into some bad times. They fell into some bad politics. They, fa- they started hating each other. They split as a nation, north and south, right? Nothing America could relate to. And then in north and south, the north started really falling apart first. You gotta remember, God told them. He said, if you follow me, I am your source of life and I will breathe through you and you will be a blessing to the entire world. You will see stuff that nobody gets to see. But if you walk away from me, you cease to be valuable in what I'm trying to accomplish. You guys are not just another people group. You are a living, walking display of heaven. I cannot afford to have you do your own thing. I need you to do my thing. So if you step out of line, I'm coming in with a hammer and I'm gonna bring you back in line because that's the whole reason why you exist. The North didn't take it seriously. They went their own way. God had to wipe them out in 722 BC by the Assyrian Empire. Well, a while later, the South started going south. And then, sure enough, God had to bring in a whole nother empire, the Babylonians, with a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, and he came in. And first, there was all this drama about, well, they were going to try to placate him, and they were going to pay him off, and eventually they just ticked him off. So he came in in 588 BC and laid a two-year siege on Jerusalem, ripped the walls down, destroyed Solomon's temple. If you remember, the big, huge temple that the Jews were so proud of, decimates everything and exports the Jews. The reason why I think this matters is if you've been here this year, 
along with me in teaching. Remember we did the Nehemiah series? You guys remember that? What was he trying to rebuild? All the stuff that you just read about getting torn down. It's all interlinked. It's all the same area, right? When he kicked the Jews out, the first wave that got kicked out underneath Nebuchadnezzar was about 10,000 Jews, and it happened to have a very famous prophet by the name of Ezekiel in that group. 13 years later, another group went out, and that was what captured Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who we're gonna be talking about. But here's what's fascinating. They were all looking up to probably the most famous prophet in all of Israel's history at the time. You know who that was? Jeremiah. Jeremiah was speaking the whole time everything was going bad. Sure, guys like Habakkuk were preaching and stuff, but with a name like that, you can't get popular. You know what I'm saying? So Jeremiah gets all the credit, and they were probably looking up to him. Ezekiel was probably looking up to him. Daniel was looking up to him. He was a man that was standing there weeping over his nation saying, you guys, we've got to get back to the Lord or it's not going to go well, and it didn't go well. And here we are left with them being exiled from their land. Remember, God let the bad guys win. The Bible actually says, I don't know if you heard me as I was reading that, it says that, and God handed over Israel to the bad guys. Why? That was his choice. One of the most difficult things you're ever going to have to process in your life especially those that have abuse in your past, hurt, wounds, tragedy. One of the most difficult things that you will ever have to process is, God, where were you? And the reason why is that every human being tends to believe, God, if you were there, that wouldn't have happened. If you guys remember in the story of Lazarus, when he got sick and died, Jesus loved him so much both his sisters came out to Jesus and said, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened. When all the time, he's the one that allowed their brother to die. And they said, why would you do that? Don't you love me? He said, oh, I love you with all my heart. There's a bigger plan in play, and it's going to result in the glory of my father. But trying to reconcile, God, where were you? is something we all have to wrestle with. God, why would you let that happen? That is a real question. And many of us have a hard time praising and worshiping today because we have yet to solve that question. But I think it's important. You see, we always link that if things don't go well for us, God must not love us enough. But the reality is, he loves you 100% but we're in a broken, bad world, right? All right, let's keep moving forward. There is another piece in here that I think is interesting. You probably would have blown right by it. It keeps mentioning this stuff that was taken out of the temple. Did you guys see that? Oh, and there were vessels, vessels. Well, vessels basically mean there was a bunch of expensive religious gear that was literally either pure gold, pure silver, or overlaid with gold and overlaid with silver. This stuff is bank, 
It's so expensive. Solomon's temple had such extraordinary, glorious things. They believe that they, they found evidence that on the outside of it, they even just had a big cluster of grapes as a sculpture. It was overlaid with gold just on the wall. So they had these massively expensive items. So when you go in and take over and decimate it all, what are you going to do? Take all the expensive gear and take it back home, right? Well, that's important for two reasons. Number one, a hundred years prior, there was a king in Israel named Hezekiah. He's famous for one reason. He got sick. God said, you're going to die. He's like, please give me more time. Well, God gave him 15 more years. And as a sign of that, he moved the sun back. You guys remember that? All right, so this amazing story. Here's the funny thing. After he was given more time, he got some visitors one day. They're like, hey, you got a good house. He's like, yeah, I do. You want to see my temple? It's awesome. So he gives them a tour. And he's like, look at that. That is so expensive. That is so expensive. That is so expensive. And he shows them everything in the temple. And then they leave. You know who those guys were? The Babylonians. 100 years later, walked right in, boom, took it all. You sure we all need more time? <laughs> right? We always think, if I only had more time, I would do such great things, would you? That's interesting, because Hezekiah sure didn't. All right, let's keep moving forward. Here's the other reason why that matters. Not just prophecy, but it matters because it was taking God's stuff and giving it to another God. That's a problem. As a matter of fact, gods or idols are kind of a big deal in the Bible. Here's why. Whatever you love most will shape your life. Whatever you love the most is the God and idol of your life. It will dictate how you act. It will dictate what you do. It will dictate what direction you go and what attitude is in your heart. So, that's why Jesus puts in a lot of warnings around things like money. Why? Because money is something that really gets our attention, doesn't it? You're willing to give up so much of your life. You will even do this. I will spend less time with my children and grandchildren so that I can have more money. That valuation demonstrates the incredible power of money. So in America, I would say across the world, but in America, the driver of money is very powerful. It is a God of our culture. Jesus said, whoa, 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 watch out. If it gets its hooks in you, it's gonna do some bad stuff. There's nothing wrong with having it. I just need to make sure it doesn't rule you, right? Well, they were taking something of God's and putting it in with another God. So they have competing gods. In 1996, there was a book. Uh, I had to read it for my doctoral um, preparation stuff. It was called The Stuff Americans Are Made Of. 
was written in 1996 by some uh, CEOs and some executives, and they were studying all the stuff going on and all the trends in America. I remember it was 1996. And the subtitle of the book was The Seven Cultural Forces That Define Americans, A New Framework for Quality, Productivity, and Profitability. So in other words, it became a kind of a bestseller of people coming into business, and they said, if you want to do great in America, be aware of these core values, and the more you can lean into them, the better you're going to do. So it wasn't a Christian book, it was just a secular book. Here's the seven core values that they discovered. Number one, insistence on choice. You should be able to get whatever you want, right? Insistence on choice. Number two, chasing impossible dreams. So the very idea of the American dream and I'm going to do something, you can be anything you want to be, that idea is very American, okay? Number three, obsession with big and more. Obsession with big and more. More is better, right? Number four, impatience with time. I want it now, right? I want it now. Number five, acceptance of mistakes. Uh, America is very interesting in how it allows second chances and third chances. So if somebody does something and they're very popular and they do something bad, they're usually allowed, if they handle it right, to try again and try again. The ability to have mistakes is okay in a company as long as you learn from it, right? Number six, the urge to improvise. The urge to improvise. Everything can be done better. Everything can be done better, right? That's why mistakes aren't a problem. It leads you to improvise. And then number seven, fixation on what's new. Fixation on what's new. It's not about what was before. That's boring. New, 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 new. All right. A quick examination of that list. How many of those are healthy and how many are unhealthy? Well, it all depends on how you're looking at it, right? But you kind of, here's my whole point. That is the core values of at least our nation in 96. Has it changed a whole lot? Well, there's some nuances, different things came up. Sometimes what rises up in culture is really good. For example, the rise of the millennial population brought in a new wave of donations, charity, worrying about other people. There's a huge movement of what? Justice and helping the oppressed, all that came up in our society with a people group, a new generation. That's great, it aligns with what God likes. But what happens when it doesn't? What happens when society's standards and society's views and cultural core values don't line up with Jesus? That is where we must be Christians first and foremost. We do not get to adopt the gods of our society. We have a God. That is the only one we serve. You see, daring to be different means rejecting the gods of your culture. Daring to be different means rejecting the gods of your culture. Let's say, for example, that science becomes a god of our culture. And what I mean by science is I mean the only thing that matters is what can be reproduced in a lab. If that is the case and that becomes the highest value, we're going to have a major problem with the supernatural. You can't reproduce God in a lab. So therefore, they would deem that God doesn't exist. 
and that's where we get things like evolution and stuff like that, right? That's a problem because now you have a non-God involved identity statement of society that you can't align with. But daring to be different means that you reject the gods of your culture and you adhere to the God of your faith. Does that make sense? Nope, all right, great. Let's pick it up in verse three, here we go. Verse three, it says, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, endowed with understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. And they were to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Is this sounding familiar? All right. Why take the kids? Like if you're going to take over another culture, say, bring me the CEOs, bring me the power people, bring me the people that made the last culture successful, and I will imprison them as my slaves and they can work for me. Why not go with that mentality? Because they had a much more brilliant and long-term strategy, which was what? If you own the youth, you own the future. So their whole job was pull out the young people, indoctrinate them in their new way of living, then not only will they serve Babylon, but they can be liaisons to their own people group. Does that make sense? Now you have them working both sides of the aisle. Now they're able to speak and do business transactions and keep the conquered people quiet. Oh, it's absolutely brilliant. Just know this in any strategy. If you want to change culture, you go for the youth. Because as they rise, they replace the prior viewpoint and they'll be more powerful in the future. You think anybody has been targeting our youth? Yeah, I think so. Here's the other piece that you need to know. These kids were taken away from their parents. The assumed scholar's average age is that Daniel was about 15. That means the other guys were probably younger because he became the leader. So you have 15, 14, 13. I want you all to think back to what you were like at 13, 14, and 15. All right, now you are ripped out of your homeland. You do not have your parents. Whatever your parents instilled in you by the age of 14, that was it. You're now on. And you're gonna go head to head with a new, entirely brand new pagan culture with no links to the past. They're gonna switch everything about you. These kids better be hardcore to be able to survive this. You gotta assume there was tons that were taken, but none of them were written about. Why? Because I would imagine all the rest went just like it was supposed to go, except for these four. 
They did it different. God ended up standing in and they linked to him and he became their father. He became their mother. He became their power strength. He became the one that was their comforter. He became, there's so many of us that have not had maybe great parents. And I just need you to know that God always wanted to move into that role. Do you understand that human parents are just managers of God's stuff, right? So he can move in there. So here's what's interesting. They're in this brand new culture and they want to change their names. Why are they changing their names? It's all about what? Identity. Jesus did this, did he not? Hey, your name's Simon, I'm gonna call you Peter. Why? He changed him into the rock because he was altering his future by giving him a new name. It's very, very smart. He did it with Abraham. Your name was Abram, but I'm going to change it to Abraham, so you're a father of many nations. That switching of names is very insidious, and sometimes that's in a positive way, sometimes that's in a bad way, but the idea was I'm going to change who you think you are. So they took away all their God names because if you look, Daniel means God is my judge. Why? Notice the word El in it, E-L. That's Elohim. That means the God of heaven. So you would end up having Mishael, right? And then the other one is Azariah, right? These were all God names. They took them and said, we want to put our God names on you. And those were things like Abednego, Meshach, Shadrach. All those link into the gods of the Babylonians. So they switch their names. But here's what's interesting. How do you remember the four names? It's never Belteshazzar, is it? Did you even remember that that was his name? But you don't think of Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael. You don't remember those, right? You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why? Oh, in my opinion because Daniel was writing the book. And he was like, listen, everybody used our other names. That's not who I am. I don't care what you call me. That's not me. My name is Daniel. I know who my judge is. I know who my God is. And my God created the entire world, so I'm not going to bow down to anything less than that. Just know this. Society has a lot to tell you who you are. They're going to call you a lot of things. They're going to call you awkward or they're going to call you stupid for believing or not very mature for having a faith or they're going to have a lot of things about you. Just remember that's not your name. Your name is child of God and that is who you are. Amen? Amen. All right. So let's keep moving forward. Daring to be different means living with a Christian identity. Pick it up in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, But I fear my lord the king, my boss, who assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? You'll endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he said, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and you can deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to Daniel in this matter and tested him for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. Underline that. That's awesome. <laughs> fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink, and he just gave them vegetables. Okay, real quick. There's been so much like misuse of this where like nowadays there's all these books on the Daniel diet. You know. Okay, real quick. Side note, Daniel didn't want to eat vegetables. That was not the point of this. He was not going, wow, that's unhealthy. That was not it at all. Why did he not want to eat the king's food? Because in that pagan culture, as in many of the pagan cultures, before they would give it to the king, they wanted it blessed. It would be blessed by being offered to pagan idols. You would offer them to other gods. They were supposed to miraculously and magically bless the food and enter into the food so that when you consume the food, they were sustaining you. Daniel's like, ew, no, I'm not doing that. Because what's going to happen is as I begin to progress, everyone's going to go, that's because you ate the gods. They're in you. He's like, I'm not giving them any credit. I'm not doing that. That defiles me. It makes me feel like I'm dishonoring my Lord. So it had nothing to do with wanting to eat vegetables or a better diet or anything like that. It was, I can't eat that food because it dishonors my Lord. And he takes a distinctive stand. You see, there's things in your life that are just going to be distinctive because the Holy Spirit's in you. And then there's some things that you could probably hide, but you know God is telling you not to, and you need to take a stand. You ever been in those? Imagine being a 15-year-old kid and going up against life and death. Powerful young man, right? But I think it's really important to cite that Daniel wasn't just trying to cause problems. He was not being rebellious. As a matter of fact, did you see how kind he was talking to the leaders? Hey, either God's in this or he's not into this. Just check it out. If you try it out and God's not in it and we don't look any different, I mean, or we look worse, we'll call it. I'm not trying to make you in danger. I'm not trying to ruin your world. All I'm trying to say is I believe it's dishonoring to my Lord. And I want to draw a line here, if you'll allow me. What a winsome way, because I can tell you this, that boss knew something's different about these kids. And they weren't trying to ruin his life. What an amazing way to share your faith, right? All right, let's finish it out. Go to verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar the king. And the king spoke to them, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king as a job, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. These kids are so gifted. 
they're anointed, they're naturally brilliant. They were raised in nobility, so they had the money for the best education. They were spiritually gifted to do things that were beyond understanding and reason. And what did they do with all those gifts? They launched a YouTube channel and became really wealthy. <laughs> what did they do? They used every single bit of it for the kingdom of God. That says something about their character. If you're 10 times better than everyone else, you could probably make quite a name for yourself. You could probably do very well for yourself. You could probably crush the opposition. But what are they known for? God's way every time. Here's the prayer prompt for this week. It's just two things that I want you to pray about. Two things I want you to pray about. Number one, God, how did you make me? In other words, how did you make me unique? How did you design me? I want you to pray about that. And the second one is this. God, what are my spiritual gifts? And how can I use them for you? God, what are my spiritual gifts? And how can I use them for you? You see, next week when we get together, we're gonna watch Daniel reveal a whole other side to him. And it's called the supernatural. He is going to do stuff that is stunning. He will actually be able to figure out a dream and tell what the meaning of it is. God is going to work through him as if he was already living in heaven and the whole coursing of the Holy Spirit is opened up and he's going to do stuff that blows the mind of the king and he gets an opportunity to share his faith. If that sounds interesting, I would sure love to see you next time we get together. That's gonna be part two. As we close out, let me just pray for you, yeah? Heavenly Father, what a beautiful day to be able to love on you, learn from you, open up your word, be inspired to be something more than what we are right now. Lord, we are asking, how did you make us? What have you built into us? What are the, the spiritual gifts and the abilities that we can use for your kingdom? How do we live for you? How do we live counterculture? How do we not buy into the gods of our society? How do we live distinctively different? God, would you begin to reveal that to us, each individually, so that we might bring you glory? God, I pray that you would anoint this altar so that, Lord, as the prayer team comes forward, that there is an open heaven right here, right now, that we might be able to be transformed. All for your glory, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we pray, amen.